and welcome to Writing for Relations with Food, a podcast series where we meet with guests from across the country to discuss food security and food sovereignty and how we can make changes to our food system with a focus on Canada. Writing Relations is a national network of adult educators and community organizers working for radical social change. And the series is part of a larger project on food sovereignty and the sustainable development goals. So if you're interested in learning more, please check out our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today, my guest is Audrey Logan. Audrey is a Nineveh Cree Métis woman from Northern Alberta who teaches out of permaculture garden in West Broadway in Winnipeg using traditional methods. She has been living off the land in urban Winnipeg for more than a decade and now she leads the Hydration Nation, a grassroots Indigenous-led movement to harness the traditional method of food dehydration and paired with nation-to-nation trade as a way of promoting food sovereignty. Audrey, we're so happy to have you here. And I just want to start by asking you to talk a little bit more about the work you do and why it's so important. What I do is um, I uh, have a an area that I had asked for a four-year land use agreement to where then I could show how to take a westernized garden and convert it to a more traditional type garden. As well as uh, I share at the garden, how is it that indigenous people became, uh, became food dependent on, on the uh, administration aspect. And a lot of that had to do with what was written in the treaty that in return for uh, sharing the land that they would be provided for. But unfortunately, a lot of the things that were provided as in provisions were very, very damaging to our people. Just salt, flour, lard, and sugars. These were things that were provided by the government for a treaty aspect, but it actually a lot more damage that's why so many people have diabetes and have so much illness because um, they've been forced to have a processed food diet, which, um, as Mandy said, you know, you eat from a box, you'll end up in a box. You dried everything. That's how we were able to transport a lot of our goods around all of, not just Turtle Island, but South America as well. Stuff were brought up here because it was dried prior and uh, easily easily brought uh, brought around uh, to the different communities. And so uh, now having archeology span back me up that we were the original farmers, if it was not for indigenous peoples farming squash, beans, corn, and uh, a myriad of other things, potatoes, tomatoes, you know, uh, the world would not have the culinary uh, beautiful dishes that they have. Even to peanuts. Peanuts originated with us, not anywhere else. And it's surprising, but even some things like coconut was used. It was on the mainland, as well as pineapple, as well as uh, dragon fruit. So many foods that people think are from other areas actually were taken there by colonists who then forced the people to grow it. But it actually originated in the Americas. And so we have a vast list of foods uh, that can be utilized and uh, 
and I love it because it really uh, breaks open the flavor in your mouth when you're eating true foods that your your DNA recognizes. And as my auntie said, we have blood memory. Even though I didn't grow up with her and, and with my family, she's, as she told me, it's in your blood. That's why you naturally are drawn to doing these sort of things and to embrace it. And since I have, it's been nothing but bliss. When it comes to flour, well, I switched off the flour because it made me bloat so bad and tired. It's been noted even in the uh, court documents that as soon as the native people were given flour to make their bread, they all went to sleep. And many people notice now a little bit more that once you have some of that bag or some bread, boom, you're sleepy afterwards. Okay, so I stopped using it and went back to what our people originally used, which was squash flour. So I have my my squash, I dry it and uh, use that as flour instead. And it's so much more flavorful and healthy. And uh, it, there's just nothing but goodness comes from it. And when we look at what saved many of the settlements that came over, it was because Indigenous people shared that knowledge with the Selkirk settlement, settlement that ended up here in Manitoba. They were dying. They did not get here in time to plant their crops. Their animals were dying from the cold because they were not used to it. And um, that's why Chief Pegwis, not just Chief Pegwis, because we have to remember it was the clan mothers who ran things at that time. And the clan mothers told the chief, no, we can't let these people starve to death. We must take them food. And so they did. They took them all kinds of dried meat, dried fish, berries, vegetables, and taught people how to make food from that. And I remember reading in one uh, Mennonite uh, cookbook, a thank you to the people of Peglas for sharing how to make the vegetable flour. It's not all Bambi and berries. <laughs> we, got, we have a whole slew of foods. And the archaeologists actually, um, because with our modern science, we're studying what was called phytoliths. And phytoliths are uh, residue in the pots, cooking pots. And they analyzed it to find out what were the people eating. And they had a page three pages long, actually. Uh, there was so much food availability and, and such that they you're like, how did this all happen? Which, in a way, proved that we were Pan American traders. We traded with amongst each other. So in uh, Thompson uh, pots, they found mountain goat. They ain't no mountain goats in Winnipeg or Manitoba, but that came from our cousins to the west. Right? So they they dried the meat and they transported it, shared it, and that's why uh, there was such a diverse amount of food. Unfortunately, because of reserves and such that, that people had to do with what was in the area. Right? Whereas before that, we had Pan-American trade, so we had all types of foods in every pot. And some of those pots were not very small. 
They figured one was uh, at least four feet wide. That's a big pot. <laughs> and there's no way I'm carrying that through the forest, which showed that they had uh, almost manufacturing spaces where they mass produced the food so where it could be dried and then shipped off to, to other areas and traded for the other foods that were in the other areas. So even though corn was not in some areas, it doesn't mean to say it didn't get there eventually. And um, in the stomach of mammoth, they found seeds that were from squash that had obviously been domesticated, which means our people had been growing that food on purpose. Because once humans start to pinch plants and cultivate them, it changes the seed. If a, it's a wild plant, usually the seed is small and very thick coat. But as soon as humans start to pinch the plants and cultivate them to produce more, they tend to have a thinner coat and be a lot larger. So that's how they were able to tell the difference between the two. So some mammoth got in somebody's garden. <laughs> and uh, when they passed away, it had those seeds in the stomach and they were able to uh, analyze it and say, yeah, these people were not food insecure. Never. And in fact, none of our people were. Uh, that's, a, a, I think, a misconception that has been passed um, terribly by the ones who've been saved by that same food. Every, every settler group that came over was saved by the food from the indigenous people. And so without that, they, none of them would have been able to make it. And so sharing the reasons why we lost the food sovereignty is important because it was banned for a certain amount of time. And it still is actually in the Indian Act. Um, there was a, uh, in Muscaday, uh, First Nations there, they had a wonderful potato farm. Local potato farmers got mad. Next thing you know, the government came and shut them down. From that, their own food. Was that recently? Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. And that's why many are just doing small, small plots um, because the economy itself is dependent upon the First Nations uh, not having that food accessibility. Their local farmers uh, who are white farmers, they, they control the system. You control the food, you control the people. So when the people stopped buying their potatoes, they got a little upset and took it to the government. And that's how the wheat board in itself got created because the natives that were farming earlier before the Indian Act were doing so good that the others got jealous. They said, ah, you know, these, these people who are funded by the government are making more money than us. But they were good growers, not just in food, but uh, of uh, also in animal husbandry. In Alberta, I remember how uh, in foster home, we actually, as a youth, we actually, um, there was a, not all white people were bad. That's a given. Because um, there were some uh, white settlers who understood what was happening, how the native people were being driven out of the, the cattle industry. And they actually would go and rustle their cattle for them, take it to market to sell for them, and then give them the monies. Because they knew that they were being driven out of out of the economy. 
and that and as a as a kid that's what one of the things we did was middle of the night get woken up okay gotta go wrestle some cattle you know so you're herding cattle into these big trucks and stuff and the farmers helped help the others out and took it to market because the government itself imposed so many permits and bylaws and such that the indigenous people were driven totally out of the economy. That's why now you see much any bison out there, very few are even run by indigenous people. There's elk farms out there, not run by indigenous people. Our native rice is not run by indigenous people. You know, so all of our food has been co-opted to their system and their ways of, of production, which isn't always good for the environment. So we need to be able to get that back, right? Some mm-hmm. call me a gorilla gardener, <laughs> a little radical. And I say, I don't care what you call me. My cupboards are full, my freezer is full, and I pass out food to, to others who are in need. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And that is what I do. So when I do my teachings, I don't ask for money. A lot of times it's like if I need some meat or if you come across some berries, bonus. But if not, that's okay. I'll still share what I know. Because it needs to be known that uh, our people were very self-sufficient for thousands of years. Through more than one ice age. You know, we went down down south, though, to hang out with our cousins. And when we came back up, we brought with us the potatoes and corn and tomatoes and many other things. As well as seeds that were just went dormant. Came back uh, in full once the ice melted. So we've been very self-sufficient here. We have over 3,000 different types of bees that help pollinate our plants. And so at the garden site I take care of at 545 Broadway, we actually do have quite a few native bees there. And it's quite wonderful to see them. Some of them are so tiny, little tiny ones. Those big bumblebees, they just crush those flowers of some of the tiny flowers that are needing to be pollinated, right? Wow, it's a lot of history there. I mean, some of the history that I don't even, myself, not aware of or didn't know about our people being um, gardening and yeah, some of that history I feel like has been lost even like within my own community to where I live or come from. Yeah, on purpose. The government uh, purposely enforced the uh, reserve system and the dependency system. All these Northern stores are all run by the government and they bring in the worst food ever and uh, <clears throat> people have no choice but to buy from them just you know there again you make it along eventually people you know over the next two or three generations don't even know that that law was imposed and so once uh, once you learn learn that 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 was an, an imposition to create this situation well gives you a whole new aspect to be able to take down that system and say, no, enough of this. You know, our young people need to understand that a lot of the things they eat every day is indigenous food. That pumpkin pie was not brought over. <laughs> and uh, and same with a lot of the, the you know, um, 
meats and and other medicines. Okay, never. I never realized that. Yeah, because all of our med, all of our foods have certain medicines in it that uh, if it's taken too much, it can cause uh, you know a lot of trouble. You got to balance things out. Right, that makes sense. Yes, and modern science is now catching up to it. <laughs> Now they're analyzing food going, oh, geez, these actually were good for you. So it, it's a whole science, uh, as, you know, physical and as well as medicinal science into our food. And what we absorb and what we take in is what then happens to our body. So we're taking in foods that are high in uh, not so good chemicals, as well as, you know, uh, pesticides and herbicides and for anything to get into a story, it has to be dipped in a fungicide. That's what keeps it from wilting. That's what keeps it from uh, uh, sprouting. So they dip it in what's called D-bud. And how I know that too is because I've gone to some of these manufacturing places. And as a truck driver in my younger years, I've seen oranges in, in, um, in California. We would go and pick them up and they were all green because for an orange to be ripe, it has to be on the fruit on the tree for two years to ripen naturally. So what they do is they pick it first year because to ship it up second year means it can get squished, it can rot a lot quicker, and all that. So we would pick up these green oranges from only one year, and we turn on the methane gas as we're driving back up into Canada. By the time we got back to Calgary, all of them were all orange. But yet I knew that they were not naturally mature. So when you see that from the other side of things as a you know tougher and producer in that sense of taking things to these places, I won't eat a lot of that commercial food. But I haven't really been dependent upon a store now for 13 years. So mm -hmm. I'm no longer worried about that for myself because there again, I've switched back to our ways. And um, sure, if it's okay, if it's a little work, I'm going out for a walk and I'll forage as I'm walking. You say, well, oh, it's contaminated. How so? Then you do know nothing about plant biology. Plants need carbon dioxide in order to live. That's why they give off oxygen for us to live. I have a little running joke with one of my grandkids. She goes, so that means tree farts we breathe in? I go, yep. <laughs> I said, and they breathe ours. <laughs> it's a mutual thing. <laughs> and uh, But shows that cycle that is needed, right? Mm -hmm. And if you go, and they've even shown all the way up into the north that uh, PCBs and everything else are even there. That there is no pristine area anywhere on this planet because everything travels falls over the wind and that wind goes around the whole planet, not just in one spot. So there are no pristine areas. What we need to do is try and get back some of it by switching the way we eat and grow. So monoculture kills a lot of things. And monoculture is basically growing one type of food or one type of thing and uh, diversified growing. You utilize a lot of different plants and that is really I find is a way way more beneficial 
because um, plants help each other. They can also harm each other. So now there's a companion list because uh, here in Canada, they discredited our people for uh, growing in uh, multiples or diverse growing. They said, oh, that's impossible. That doesn't work. Also, they created an agricultural study uh, center, which over the decades has actually proven our people right. Yeah, it proved that uh, certain plants like each other and certain plants don't, and how each can affect each other. And the seven sisters are basically telling about how companions, how they can help each other, but also harm each other, but also create different medicines. So many people know the three sisters, but they're actually the seven. We have corn, bean, squash. But then we have sister sunflower, which helped the squash, and uh, sister tobacco. And then uh, sister sunroot. Usually it's a root, root vegetable that loves the clay, and it helps bust up the clay first before the other sisters get planted. And then people say, well, what about the seventh? You. You're the seventh sister. Because you're part of the equation. You're not outside of it. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Writing Our Relations with Food. Uh, we would like to thank our wonderful guests for sharing their knowledge and their insights with us. And from everyone here at Writing Relations Canada, we would like to thank our partner, the John Humphrey Center for Peace and Human Rights. And of course, our funders, the Catherine Donnelly Foundation, and the Employment and Social Development Canada for making this project possible. We hope you'll join us again next month.